Hope better late than never. Hell out. Whatever, I can't do it. I don't have a good one. I just have to not no. think about it. If no. I don't think about it and I just go for it, it comes out great. If I think about it, I flub it hard. Mine just uh, comes out messed up British. That, well, there's a reason for that. And, you know, sorry to Australia's history, but. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, good morning, everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. I, uh, afternoon. I, I got up early for my day off because I was like, I got stuff to do before the show this morning. And I got it all done. Nice. Did you? Yeah. I got myself yeah. up early too. I'm just, there's so much reading to do for, for yeah. the grad school. I'm just always oh, reading now, but mm-hmm. some interesting stuff this morning about. Well, fortunately it's like news. subject matter you like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's been interesting so far. Last week I wrote an essay on zoonotic diseases. That's fun. Oh yeah. Oh, shit. Plague. Yeah. Plague. Yeah. Yep. Still out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Live and kicking. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I've I've taken some courses on uh zoonotic disease and, and bloodborne pathogen transfer mm. and things like that in, in zoos. And it's uh it's some scary stuff to oh, learn yeah, there's what some can nasties. happen. Yeah. <laughs> nasties for sure. Did you I've ever, seen some stuff? I was gonna ask if you ever encountered anything at, at your zoo job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've we've dealt. I've dealt with uh, chytrid within amphibians. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with um, what's the uh, uh, crypto in geckos and how you have to like basically bomb the enclosure, pressure treat it, ammonia treat it multiple times. All this gnarly stuff. Yeah. Um, plenty of cases of cancer and some very long lived animals across species board. You know, it's it's interesting. A lot of these older animals they managed to get such good care in the zoo that they outlived some of the average norms. And as they got older, they fell prey to some of the same ailments that humans do as we get old cataracts, uh, liver failure, you know, arthritis, stuff like that. And uh, so I've seen a lot of that stuff, seen wounds from accidents, infections, topical stuff, stuff that goes Mm. systemic, just crazy stuff. Um, a Chuck Wallow that took a bite on the arm and got a bone infection from it that started spreading. So he had to amputate his arm to save his life. And he was great at like all this crazy stuff, dude. Yeah. Wow. Damn. <laughs> I mean, it's a numbers game. Once you, you know, after eight years and thousands of animals across hundreds of species, inevitably you see some wild stuff. So, right, right, right. It's and- the ones that, can hop over to you though that are the the especially yeah ones. fortunately i never had to deal with anything like tongue worms in any snake species mm-hmm. or imports like that because you can't get rid of that but um yeah it's just uh it's how it goes you play the numbers game inevitably you're gonna see the the bad side of that coin sometimes it's the same thing with collections personally too you know? sure sure yeah so quarantine quarantine absolutely <laughs> Cohen's number one rule <laughs> yeah it's a good one yeah speaking that's of what, uh he's what he said in the new herp to culture magazine yeah <laughs> well he's got the space you know he can do it like i think i think that's always the biggest challenge is people who, mm-hmm. whose hearts are in the right place they don't necessarily have the space to do it properly so absolutely um, I think I that's like... where it becomes sort of taboo to talk about because those people don't want to be like well i can't so i don't and right. you know they're worried about people attacking them. Yeah. No, I I'm in just like a little apartment, right? And I I do the best I can, but what that yeah. means is like all these snakes behind me in my bedroom, right? And then quarantine just like 
on the other side of the kitchen. <laughs> so all you can do. It's better than nothing, but ideally, yeah. you know, you hear people talk about like separate buildings to for all oh, that sure. airborne business. So yeah, it's like you said, it's a matter of what you can swing. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. to, to try and implement a true proper quarantine process costs thousands of dollars per individual that comes in. Like you have to have a separate building on separate ventilation um, and then you're doing uh, pre-ship requests from the person that's sending you the animals. So blood tests, full health right. panels, all that stuff. And then when you get them in, you perform those tests again, blood, weight, visuals, do all the generic intake stuff, quarantine them for usually three to six months, sometimes longer if it's like a turtle or a snake and where it comes from. And then you do tests throughout that quarantine period. And each time that's a lot of money. Yeah. And then you finally clear it afterwards and you, you know, that's five grand easy just on testing and, and maintenance. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's like, in my opinion, that's like AZA zoological, like you can't get better than that. And then the, you know, procedurally also helps like you do them at the end of the day or have a separate crew do it or Mm -hmm. whatever. So, and that's hundred percent. That's hard to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, man. I just, uh, I just finally got, um, the two wild caught IJs that I got from Dan mm-hmm. out of quarantine. How are they doing? Hey, oh, dude, they are nice. Holy <laughs> shit. Are they nice? <laughs> wow. You know, there's something different about the, the wild caught stuff that I see, like Steven Katz will post some of his every now and again, and they just, I don't know if they just develop really well because of the appropriate natural setting. And by the time they come in, they're just like, you just clean them up a little bit and they look amazing because they were given everything they needed because we've seen exceptional examples of these animals that are captive born and bred in collections that pop up here and there, but very few of them are as exceptional as some of the wild caught stuff that I've seen. So. Yeah, the one is um, the one reminds me of um, something you along the GQ type of bloodline, mm-hmm. you know, like that um, real khaki silver sort of uh, base color, and then mm-hmm. that you know those oranges just popping out. Yeah, and then the other one's just like reminds me of like a diluted poster child. It's like really Ooh. super orange, man. It's really sharp. I love the oranges. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So nice. (laughs) And, you know, what's crazy is is that, you know, they act very different than, like, my captive carpets. And not in an aggressive way. Mm -hmm. Um, Just very, uh, what's the word, inquisitive? You know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. They're just watching them and their tongue flicks and, you know, how they're reacting to figuring you out. And, you know, just very different than... Now that's an interesting. Yeah, I was just going to ask. So, thought there. Would you would you say that what they're doing is observing this novel world from different perspective? Because captive bred stuff, it's just it doesn't shock them. It's it's kind of yeah. the novelty's yeah. worn off. Whereas these animals have lived in a jungle their whole lives, and all of a sudden they're like watching a dude walk around all day. Or are they yeah. legitimately more cognitively developed and? they've actually been forced to have to use their brains mm, in the wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe they're literally smarter. They're, in, they're, in, they're <laughs> finally tuned. You know, that could be. I've only fed them once. Um, and I just wanted to see if they would eat. They ate no problem. I know Dan fed them once. Um, uh-huh. 
but just the you know that's the other thing too like the body tone of the animal you know is just like solid muscle mm-hmm. but not fat at all not mm-hmm. like an ounce of, i mean i don't know i guess you don't know anymore nowadays you know when people yes. it's open then they see how much fat is it bodies and stuff right <laughs> like we talked about last time that snake that ate six times and was fat yeah yeah so yeah but i don't know just very very uh very interesting very yeah. very cool i'm enjoying uh enjoying working with them that's awesome huh I've had wild caught stuff come in that has been babies, mm-hmm. right? But these are adults. These are like full size. These females could breed. Mm-hmm. And I almost tried them this year, but you know, I don't want to, you know, stress is the killer. So, yeah, um, they're still new to mm-hmm. your rhythm in your room. Yeah. And this continent. <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Touché. <laughs> <laughs> time zones and, point uh, lucas <laughs> ding, ding, ding. um yeah that's a good point but yeah you're you're focusing on your your winter breeders this season aren't you yeah yeah you know i haven't even put anything really together yet um i don't, I don't know if i <laughs> i don't know man I, i'm kind of missing the mark today was going to be the day because we just got about a foot of snow so if there was ever a day to put snakes together it's uh you know now but i have a question here's a question early for diamonds though right so you're good on that oh yeah 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 they're not even up from from breeding so but here's a question i have from you guys i was thinking about this yesterday right you know how like we put pythons together um when a or i guess snakes in general but like when we're trying to breed them a front comes through um some kind of pressure you know uh change uh, and then, you know, we use that to our advantage. Right. So I'm thinking like, does it make sense to put the snakes together after the storm is gone or while the storm is happening or when the storm is rolling in? Because I thought like, why would the snakes want to be breeding if it's raining out or maybe they would, I don't know. What are you, what are your guys thoughts on that? Where would be the most opportune point to put them? I guess it really doesn't matter because Right. They're going to breed anyway, but I'm just trying to figure out what's the trigger. Is the trigger the fact that it rained and now it's, you know, uh, thinking of where they come from, where it's dry and wet. And now they know like, okay, the wet season has arrived. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas some years, maybe there's drought. Maybe that will keep them from breeding or maybe the wet season doesn't come. You know what I mean? I I don't know. Just thoughts. It's a really interesting question. Some of my my earliest understanding of of why animals reproduce, and this is like very immature. This is pre like my snake breeding days, but because I was an animal nut as a kid, so I like paid attention to what and why for whatever was in front of me. And uh, I always understood that if an animal biologically goes through the entire process of reproducing. Um, that they've had enough environmental tells to encourage them that the coming year can support a successful reproduction for them, good chance of offspring survival, good chance of them surviving, passing on their genes, whether that be food, water availability, the right climate, whatever it is, all these factors play into a role or play into, you know, that animal's biology sort of, deciding that it's okay to go and then obviously there's a lot of chance and meeting another mate and a lot of luck involved in surviving the harsh seasons if any depending on the species but i always thought 
you know, if, if we're using this rainstorm, to me, what rain means is that there's going to be a, an abundance of plant and foliage growth, which feeds a lot of the insect life and rodent life, which then feeds kind of throughout the food web right. and goes on through that. And so what, you know, maybe instinctually over time, these animals have had more success breeding in years with heavy rain because they have more of those, you know, mm-hmm. those tertiary effects from the food web, you know, food for them, food for their offspring, a good, healthy environment and ecosystem all based on the rain. And maybe it's right. just a long instinctually learned evolutionary trend that in a winter or a season where you get good rainfall, the coming months should be fruitful for you and your offspring. So if there was ever a time to reproduce for ensuring your survival, do it now. So that's always my thought. I would echo that. I think that makes the most sense. You're going to have an abundance of, of prey items. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Rocking the Stever when we I said the exact same thing yeah, as soon as he did. came on in the green room. Yeah, I, I asked him to show us the shorts, but he said right. that it doesn't extend below the waist. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Uh, but anyway, but no, continue. yeah, Riley, I think I think that that is probably a really good bet um, because, right, it, it it wouldn't appear that there would be any direct benefit to like active rainfall and breeding right like mm-hmm. that's not right it, it has and, to and be something correlating with the before or after and what right. that means for the snake so that's why i think that your answer probably makes the most sense and what and name me one environment globally that doesn't depend on some sort of pattern of rainfall throughout the year that has reptiles living in it because it rains in the desert yeah right i don't know yeah, so, well, I mean, life, you know, life is all about the everything revolves water. around water. Yeah, yeah, sure. Reptile scales are designed to keep hydration in and prevent them from desiccation. Yeah. Amphibians don't have scales, therefore, they are very, very sensitive to that. That's why they are typically found in very humid tropical environments. No, you're spot on. And, and like the tiger salamanders around where I'm at, and, and you as well, Riley, it's mm-hmm. like they pretty much lay in ephemeral ponds right mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. just rain happens fills up a hole that's yeah. usually dry that's where tiger salamanders yeah. lay so and we've seen the the in, decline of their territory as a result of these warm years yeah the droughts cuz because mm-hmm. when you don't get enough rain the those the ponds don't stay full ponds, right so i oh, saw yeah. it last year we did a survey yeah. of the eggs counted mm-hmm. hundreds of eggs mm-hmm. in like January by February, the water level had dropped so much. They all decimated. Yeah. Right? yeah. So. I, I was a part of field research in Santa Barbara too, looking at right. Western right. pond turtles, red legged frogs, and some of the other adjacent species out there. And yeah. man, I would go back the following year, the following season with the forestry service. Cause that's the only way we can go and under somebody permitted and the same pool that I was, you know, catching and measuring tadpoles of various species and things out there and was just bone dry the next season. Like, nothing was left it was just a wasteland so it it, and i think it applies to every ant reptiles but everything sort of it's not just a linear food chain it's a complex web with like multiple avenues because predators can be prey as well and there's all these like different layers to it and so if you really just focus on you know okay carpet python this particular species it's going to do really well in its environment here and it its prey source relies on rain coming at subsequent times of the year in order for them to 
you know, produce. And that's what the carpet pythons feed on. So rain is, I think it's just become an, an ingrained hardwired instinct that when it rains and you get a good rainy season, the following year is going to be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. More available resources for sure. <laughs> that makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. Which I think, I think I, I, you know, I guess that was sort of like, we kind of already kind of, that's kind of already a thought already. And if you're a breeder or thought about breeding or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm just, I don't know. I just, sometimes I think like, you know, well, me and Rob have talked about this all the time. There's so many, it's so hard to understand like what exactly makes animals want to reproduce mm-hmm. um, or just trying to understand all the little intricate details of, of the environment. Um you know, so, so maybe there's, uh, you know, I just throw out a number, there's 10 things that you, you know, could get them to go. And if you hit three of them, that's, that's enough information for certain species to, mm-hmm. to reproduce, you know, right. some yes. of them maybe take five, some mm-hmm. of them maybe take six, some mm-hmm. maybe take one, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I agree with yeah. that. Some are easier than others. Some are harder. And then to answer your earlier question to pair during or before, during, or after a pressure storm. I don't know. I don't know. I've never thought like, okay, the rain's coming. I'm going to wait till it's done and then try it and see what happens. I've always just been like, rain's here, snakes go. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious. Like, I'm going to have to try to observe it myself to see when they're locked up. Are yeah. they locked up right, right away? Are they locked up, you know, after the storm comes through? You know, I just, I don't yeah. know. It's just for my own geeky brain. I wonder. It's good info. Like, <laughs> how snakes uh experience changes in pressure right because like for us we we don't really feel it right we're not necessarily equipped to feel when that you know Mm -hmm. we might notice the effect of it right but and we know that that might be going on but we don't have like an organ to sense it whereas like in fish right they very very physiologically and directly feel changes in pressure because they have swim bladders Mm -hmm. and they blow up or shrink depending on on the pressure um mm-hmm, so right. i i wonder where snakes fall on that spectrum of of actually experiencing changes in barometric pressure um and whether they're you know correlating breeding behavior correlating with rain right like is that them experiencing the change in pressure beforehand well it has to be because they're not getting wet in cages so mm-hmm. they know they know the pressure is changing somehow yeah, air pressure. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> oddly enough, and, and again, this is just the couple times that we that I've been in Australia, and even when I've herped in the U.S. But um, you know, I was growing up, I was always told that if you want to find herps, you go out after it rained, and I think you'll find some herps. But as far as pythons go, I we didn't find really anything, hmm. which is just odd to me. You know, I but you think found stuff be... when herping in the U.S. after a rain, they're out, just not in Oz. <sighs> I f- we found things like, uh, you know, I don't know, not snakes, newts, mm-hmm. <laughs> newts, frogs. salamanders, frogs, yeah. toads, salamanders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those guys come out to to swap out the water they've been storing and sequester new moisture, and then it usually means that flushes, you know, bugs out of the ground that you know can't breathe when it's flooded so they come out yeah. and they take feeding opportunities 
Sure. So there are you would think um, like if you if you think about the pine barrens, right? You know, mm -hmm. the one thing that I noticed when we went to the pine barrens, it's just toads everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And what eat you know, the eastern hognose snake is notorious toad eater, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. Um, you know, I don't know when is that uh, we and again we only looked for it for a little while. So, and I know they're quite difficult to find in the wild, but you would think that the toads would come out or that amphibian life would come out after it rains, which then would bring out those snakes. Exactly. Yeah. You there's know? a species of snake around here, the sharp tail snake. It's a little one, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Contia uh, tenuous um, that last winter, I remember right after a rain, around March or so, everybody, mm -hmm. all the biologists in my company were finding them. They were, mm -hmm. cause they were out eating those slugs and snails, yep. slugs know, and is, earthworms that come out from the rain. Thing. Right. Yeah. So right. that follows that logic. To it's, I think it's species specific to what their prey does. So if, sure. if big pythons don't really go for small frogs and amphibians, they're going to respond to when they're the birds or the mammals are out when it rains bird birds are not flying they're not out when it's raining mammals are in dens burrows whatever trying to stay dry so they're not out so after a rain maybe they're out getting water or munching on the fresh growth of, of veggies and the birds finally come out like once the rain clears sun comes up then they come out so it's after the rain clears that the snakes that are predating upon the mammal and, and avian prey come out probably so right it's probably species specific and timing specific. Yeah. Which just shows you how much we don't know. <laughs> we know very little because yeah. everything I've said is all just speculation as we're talking. Yeah. It always yeah. comes That's back just... to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have another question. Um, and this is something that I've kind of adopted over the last couple seasons with breeding. Um, part of it is I don't want to disturb females too much while they're breeding or cycling or afterwards, but prior to laying eggs is I let cages get messy. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I'm not like right now I'm ashamed at the state of the glass on these cages. Um, and there's like urates and, and stuff. like, I'll pick up the bulk of stuff when I can without disturbing them. But like, right. I let females have their funk to a degree in there. And, uh, and, and I've kind of adopted that over the last couple of years when talking with my boss um, over the years, because he does that with his his uh, his blood pythons, um, the Womas, the rings especially need a lot of that. And um, and then I always anytime I have this thought train, I think about when Ari's book was mentioning or some of his research. I can't remember where he wrote it was mentioning how females like to leave urates at the entrance of their dens and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I, yeah. I just. I feel like there's got to be some something that another thing we don't perceive uh, in their their chemical cues and scents. And so this year, I'm like, like if you came over and looked at my cages, I'd be like, oh, just don't don't judge me. There's like you know urates all over these cages, yeah. and these females are filthy. And and I'm having so far a better season than I've had. Ever. Yeah, no, I'm doing the same thing. I mean, th there is absolutely something to the chemical cues. Mm -hmm. and when you sterilize a cage, you, you wipe that, you know, and whatever, yeah. uh, you know, chemical cues, I'm sure there's more scientific terms, but I don't know. Hormones, whatever that pheromones. female was leaving there, you just wiped it, you know, maybe yeah. that was yeah. what was going to invite that male and let him know yeah. where she's at in her mm -hmm. cycle. You know? Yeah. Every time I put your male blackhead in with the females, the females would take a crap 
<laughs> and it took every it took every ounce of me not to just like oh, I gotta claim this right away. Right. Like, Grant's right. like, leave it, let let stuff go, and I'm like, it's so gross, God, and, you clean. Yeah, yeah. they have Must to communicate be. somehow, and it's not yeah. with vocal cords. So yeah. maybe yeah. it's with and, funk. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I forget. So. I I can't remember who told me that, but uh, early on in my breeding, I think it was probably Nick. Mm-hmm. You know, like having conversations with Nick and more or less saying like the same type of thing where he's like, you know, at the breeding season, it's kind of a slow time for him. Like he's not really doing nothing because yeah. you're not. Yep. Yeah. You're you're not cleaning. You're just making you're sure not. they got water and yeah, that's about, you know, sit. Yeah. you're not feeding. They're not really, you know, really going to town. They're not really defecating all that much because their their systems are kind of cleaned mm-hmm. out, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I'm yeah. Exactly. I've That's... I've been feeling neglectful of my my snake room lately because I'm like, well, you guys don't need anything, so yeah. I guess I'll go find yeah. something else to do. Like, <laughs> I know I'm gonna miss this downtime when baby season comes, and I've got a hundred hungry, angry, poopy mouths to feed. Yeah, just poop everywhere. <laughs> just piss and shit and blood everywhere. Just yes. biting all over me. Yeah. <laughs> I just try to make sure that you know there's no no kind of mold of any kind mm-hmm. and sort of let them go yeah, yeah. with right. their thing yeah I've, I've adopted a new threshold of at this line is too much mm-hmm. um, mold is bad so anytime mold potential growth is starting gotta go mm-hmm. um, you know big chunks of stuff if you can easily remove it yeah, and you're on paper bedding or particulate bedding like it'll still leave some so just pull the bulk out yeah. but yeah if it gets like and if there's condensation on the tub and there's poop and stuff you gotta you know wipe some of that off because yeah. it'll hold bacteria and you don't want that yeah. humid poopy fruit fly potential growth in there and yeah yeah but it's I within guess reason for sure <laughs> yeah don't yeah. leave the giant herbs in there but you know yeah we're there's just, we're talking about the little schmears there's little extremes <laughs> there's like too clean and too messy you want to find some happy medium during this breeding season my my thought process is you know it'll just be for a couple months and then soon as temperatures go back up eggs are dropping things like that everybody gets full overalls and i won't have to think about it anymore for sure yeah, yeah. agreed <laughs> that was something I, I wanted to chit chat about because I, I don't know if everybody does that. I know some folks, you know, really like the sterile keeping. I, I'm doing that at the, at the advice of Nick as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure the more experienced folks are sitting here going like Riley, welcome to the par- <laughs> Welcome to the party. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, I don't know what else. So, I think we should start with yeah. You had you had some your, stuff. Your new addition, right? I mean, me, yeah, Riley? me, Lucas. Yes, Lucas. I am yes. Lucas. Lucas yes. is me. Yes, and you I are. have new point, additions. Point, Lucas. <laughs> I don't have any new additions because yes, I'm trying to the one <laughs> down here with the new stuff. Yeah. So, absolutely, I'm super stoked. Um, I got a female ruffy. Uh, Carinata from Nick, yay! Which I didn't think that was gonna be a thing for me. Like it just mm-hmm. kind of fell into my lap, and I'm so excited it did. Um, you know, right. it's, obviously it's such an incredible species, and I just thought they would be unavailable to me. Um, but you know, just 
luckily enough, uh, was able to snag one. Uh, in addition to the two inland carpets, the pair of, of inlands, nice. um, which I think I put a deposit down for those like middle of last year. So that's been mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, and yeah, all three are looking great. Um, I got first feeds with all of them. I was uh, worried I might have to scent with chicken broth for the roughy. Uh, they can be a little bit tricky to get going, is what I've heard. Uh, and and Nick did have to do that a few times, but she took uh, just an unscented uh, a fuzzy right off the bat. So that's awesome. And yeah. That I'm super stoked. <laughs> so these these two in particular are ones that like a lot. Of, well, let's start with the roughy first. Like you know, sure. I mean, when you opened it, was it? Did you have the same experience I had? Like, oh my god, it's a roughy. yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you, I definitely went straight to that deli cup. Like the inland, <laughs> you know, I almost felt bad because they were the species that I had been fixated on and so excited uh-huh. to get. But then, like, oh crap, there's a ruffie in the box. You guys wait, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But no, I definitely did have a similar experience where when it was in my hand, it was just kind of like, holy shit, you know. <laughs> like, there's yeah. there's a different. Uh, I, you know, for lack of a better term, just a different vibe about them than the other carpets I've worked with and from like green trees. Like they really are just kind of their own thing, which is supported by the natural history and the taxonomy and whatnot. You know, they're kind of on their, their little Island on the way out um, of evolutionary history. But yeah, no, the the eyes are something that stick out to me as super different especially when they're like neonates and have bulging little eyes, you know, they're, they're just so cool. And, and the keeled scales. Um, I remember you had mentioned kind of more of the rough pattern on top and then it gets smoother as you go down the side of the, of the scales. And that was cool to see. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to, to raise her up. Uh, Thanks man. Yeah. And they're one of those ones too, where everybody is going so all out with their setups. Like I'm so excited to try my hand at making the cool rock, like foam rock things and, and give them something really special to give her, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of interesting. Like when you look at, so I was, cause when you look at their environment, like there's kind of in these gorges that are, right. you know, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, trees and rock, rocky outcrops and stuff like that. That's that where they're from. And when you look at it, it's like, oh, it's, you know, these snakes really utilize trees and, you know, these rocky outcrops for a lot, probably humidity. And, you know, they're in this crazy environments and I don't know. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's really cool. I like them. Super a lot. cool. And I'm, I want to see the, cool threat display and those what is it the longest maxillary teeth in python yeah. like but she's super nice she's just tame yeah. as can be so i don't know if i'm gonna get that <laughs> maybe you don't want that reaction yeah yeah you know it's so i'm naive i the the only roughy i've seen in person is matt minnetola's um you know when i went out to, uh stayed at your place for carpet fest eric we saw his collection and i held his sure. I think it was a sub adult at that point, but I've seen photos um, 
uh, Casey Lazic was posting photos recently of of ones from that adults that he was holding back in the '90s, and they look huge. And I'm always pleasantly surprised at how big they get when I see photos of people's adults. They remind me of like an adult Sanzinia in terms of size, mm. like you know, yeah. good girth, but like not as long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's freaking wicked, dude. Like, I hate you all. <laughs> I want Robbie's too. Um, no, I need Soon to save enough. up. Soon I need enough. to save up for some uh, some some hardware. Oh yeah, what kind of hardware? Oh, I get it. Never mind. <laughs> that one. Sorry, I'm a little slow. Oh, the one you were talking about earlier. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got it. You know, happy happy wife, happy life sort of mm-hmm. thing. Okay. You know, she doesn't listen to it, so she won't know. Perfect. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's put up with me for six years. So I, uh, I spontaneously. <laughs> so check this out. Yeah. It's, it's rough. Trust me. I put up with myself for 31 years. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so my boss got this cool electric uh, sprayer at work. That's it's electric and you charge it. It's like a big gallon. You just press a button. And I thought it was going to be cheesy. But it's like the finest mist. It's like beautiful. I'm like, oh, look at that. It's going to make all these frog tanks so nice. And I was like, light bulb. I buy that. And I bought it because Rachel's just, she's obsessed with plants since COVID now. Oh. And she's okay. just been working her ass off at work. And she comes home dead tired. She wakes up. She's a zombie. Like, just brutal. Just absolutely unmotivated. So I'm going to get her this cool electric mister so she can sit there, press a button, and mist her plants with her eyes closed. I was wondering where you were going with that. I thought yeah. maybe you were gonna like Sorry. proposed while misting her. No, <laughs> like, no, no, that would be waited out in the mist or whatever. Yeah. You're right I'm not out. that skilled. <laughs> don't hold, don't hold me to that level. Holy crap! Uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, very so. exciting. Yeah, that's an important thing to save up for, I suppose. And and then I want to buy a house too. You know, like so I've got all these things because uh. you know these snakes deserve more space. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yes. I've been watching too much Sopranos. This coffee's really <laughs> setting in. Holy crap. <laughs> so talk about your, your inlands. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah. the inlands are, are another one where they're a lot different than anything I've had before, as they should be, right? You know, they're, yeah. they're their own thing. Um, but definitely understand what everybody's talking about with the blue that doesn't photograph well. Yeah. Um, it was really cool to to see that because it's true. You you don't really get that hue in, in pictures, but yeah. when you're looking at that belly, especially under like natural sunlight, it really does have that, that blue uh, accent to it, which is super cool. And um, yeah, they're, they're as advertised. They're both super chill again. And uh, the boy ate for me just fine. The girl I had to kind of, uh, persuade that Mm -hmm. that food is good by repeatedly whacking her in the face until she ate it Uh, (laughs) which honestly that has been a go-to trick for me that worked with the green tree that is i was gonna say that's a chondro trick yeah and it worked for this inland so uh but yeah no all three i i couldn't be more more excited uh how big are the inlands they're they're very small um, are they 2020s? 2020s. Yeah. 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 They're all. So you still haven't gotten the full yeah. experience because. Yeah. Wait till no. they're bigger. 
<laughs> they still look like great little worms. Like, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, they're like, little they worms. One thing that did stick out to me is a different head shape from the, yeah. the other neonates uh, that I've worked with. It, it's a lot more uh, slim and long, I guess I would say. Like, it's kind of a pronounced snout whereas like the bread lie even when they're little they kind of have the the arrowhead shape mm-hmm, to it so mm-hmm. that's cool um yeah. but yeah i mean what's not to like it's awesome yeah <laughs> i've seen i've seen a couple adults in person seen the ones with like red in them like really good red mm. um coming through and then i've seen some like really beautiful blue ones and they're just yeah something else um, it's going to be cool to see how they color up i i don't really know exactly what to expect mm-hmm. um so, yeah, it's also just good to have a, a larger variety of Morelia again, because it was just the bread, the bread lie for a while once I parted ways with my granite jag. So it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. Next, you need jungles and then pop winds and then coastals and then Darwin's and then Nova's. Nova's. This is yeah. the. Uh, can you guys see that? Yeah. Ooh. Nice. Yeah, Ooh. that's my mail. Look at this um, high tech, Eric. How'd you yeah. do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nice. Yeah, that's see that. I love all that shape. red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, man. It's yeah, it's in the negative that. space. It's all the red fish netting, fish netting behind the pattern. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I might as well show these. Look two. at all these um, amazing I'm pictures. I'm doing it. <laughs> Hold on. Here we go. This is the one I was telling you about. All that orange. Look at that. Yeah. So nice. That's yeah. Awesome. When it comes up from the side like that, you catch it at like 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. and it's just like whoa, flamed yeah. all the way up. Oh, it's the killer. Killer. Yeah. Good stuff. And I also I also got another Woma. It's just not here yet. So that's another one. Oh add to this. What's conversation. the story with this one? So this one, um, is a 2018 female that uh, the fo- the fine folks at Zion Hill Exotics mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. were were looking to rehome. Um, she's just female heavy, and this was one that I guess she didn't that. really have specific uh, <laughs> breeding plans for. So I jumped on it. Uh, really, really light, beautiful female Woma with some good oranges. So sweet. It's been too cold to ship her out, but mm-hmm. I'm super excited. And, That'll uh that'll complete my group for now. Two point two, unless Riley, unless yours drops some eggs. Then. Oh, that's happening. Nothing's that, ever really complete. That, that reduced pattern <laughs> female, she's she's definitely going. She's yeah. she's like that thick right now. She oh, I pick that's her up. Awesome. I held her up for Grant the other day. I was like, look at this as she's trying to bite me. I'm like, ooh, ooh okay, put you away. Um, that is one yeah, of the prettiest womas that I've ever seen. She is huge. Yeah. Oh, huge wow. the other female is going to go later she always goes a little bit later so i need to decide if i want to grab a pair from this first clutch or just get a female or something from this clutch and wait for that other one mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know sweet but, <laughs> yeah and then you know you're for sure gonna get a half a clutch of, of blackheads Woo! from that one female at the very least i can't That's even like, it's like a for sure thing at this point, as long as I, Grant doesn't fuck up the eggs. That's what I was going to say. I, <laughs> all of that dude near them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> oh, mm-mm, sorry. Mm-mm. He doesn't go in that room. No. no. Okay, good, he no good, touchy. Good. He no touchy. I have full faith in, in you and Grant, uh, but I'm trying not to let myself get excited. 
because sure. the heartbreak would be sure. too much. <laughs> sure. I hear but you. holy crap, that would be so cool. If yeah, we man. Blackheads. Yeah. And with her size, you know, eight eggs isn't out of the question, you know. She's big. Yeah. She's and that ovulation huge. was thick. <laughs> Dude, when the photo I sent you was at the start of it, too. Yeah. 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 So she, when she blows up, it's literally a small football in there. Like not exaggerating. It's a small football in there. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. would you say that walmas and blackheads are relatively simple to breed is the difficulty always seems to be in the eggs, right? I would say from my limited experience, walmas will breed regardless. You put them together, they'll breed. The eggs right. are the challenge for them. Blackheads, right. I think, are probably the males seem to be just as willing. I mean, at least from Lucas's male as an example, <laughs> he's he's literally like scarring the female sperm. That's them my all boy. He's, <laughs> he's tattooing his name all over these girls. I and, swear, um, he just he was deprived for eleven years and has all this pent up yeah. <laughs> frustration. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, I think the Womas will breed readily. I think they breed a rope if you let them. I think the blackheads, I think they just need to be mature. I think they're uh, they're a different level of confident and instinctual. They're more, they seem more, they seem smarter than Womas to me in terms of the their approach to what's around them, food, breeding, handling. They just seem to calculate and think more. So I think yeah, with them, you have to be more and- patient in every regard to me yeah <laughs> yeah they they kind of have more of like a in my experience like almost like a lizard like sentience like they're always checking out what's going on whereas the womas they're just like yeah bite <laughs> yeah i mean i for the, the, my experience with the womas especially that new girl if i put my phone in there to take a photo i gotta watch out because she'll eat my damn cell phone yeah the blackheads <laughs> i'll open the enclosure and no matter what they're doing they both stop and come out to see what's going on and it's not malicious it's not looking for food they're just very tuned yeah. in they're very aware yeah i, I love that they they are probably my favorite species right now they're growing on me i mean it, it working around them like i am right now is it, they're growing on me um which is unhealthy <laughs> i love i love the fact that they have retained their value um, mm-hmm. for so many years and it's like one of those species that um you know i guess like people that really love them like you know they really love them you, know, you don't yeah. see many people. It's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a blackhead just to have a, but you know what I mean? It's sure. like nobody, I don't know. It just seems like, well, part of that probably is that it has to be such an investment, right? Like you're not yeah. going to do that more often than not. If you're not like really into it. Um, right. I would hope. Um, well, yeah, especially because it gets so like big see... too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, a, uh, that's true. Yeah, and, I always forget that part. And as far to as far as somebody who's looking at it from a breeder's perspective, the babies are hard as hell to get going. Mm-hmm. So there's turnoffs to a, a pet hobbyist and a breeder. Sure. So what that you've Australian got limitations. Isn't hard. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Anteresia, aspidites. I kind of like. I kind of like it that way. It keeps it challenging. Me it keeps too, it man. Fun, and it keeps the the people who just want easy easy projects out, and it keeps it. A little more wholesome, and and now that I don't have my my children's pythons anymore, which I kind of regret selling them because like they were easy <laughs> for me. 
but I don't know if the others are. And I'm really terrified after how tiny those babies were. I don't know if I want to deal with that again. So <laughs> maybe in a, maybe in a few years, I'll circle back around. You know, there's a, a friend of mine. He's always like, Riley, pygmies, pygmies, pygmies. I'm like, you suck. Did you stick away from me? Don't touch my wallet. <laughs> I want yeah. them bad. Yeah. As for the the blackheads, though, right? Like in terms of the eggs, you always hear that they're so easy to kill, right? And that that's the part of things that people have a hard time with. But Eric, maybe you remember I was re-listening to the Jason Hood episode of NPR, and mm-hmm. one of the things that really stuck out to me from that episode, and obviously Jason's had great success with the blackheads is is when presented with that idea he was like no they're not hard right and it, it was weird he he just kind of he said he does a night drop with the with his eggs to try and help reduce the condensation so that they don't get wet yeah and that was something that was really interesting to hear because i think we can all agree that's an uncommon approach but at the same time it's like maybe that actually makes good sense like here we are talking about mi and how that probably makes healthier babies because they have to deal with actual fluctuations in temperatures but then we don't give the actual fluctuation in temperatures even though we easily could yeah yeah um, yeah I, I don't know man it's it's I, 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 um <laughs> it's like it's like i i think it's maybe starting to sort of catch up but like for years like when we would talk to people on npr and 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 do the you know talk about well there's always the you know people would ask me why do you always ask people about their breeding and whatever and i say yeah because we're talking to people from all around the world and what people forget is is that yes there's certain parameters that you have to do but depending on where you're from there's going to be ways to sort of work around some of the problems that you may have because you know, uh, it's not humid enough in your area. It's too humid or, you know, whatever the case would be, mm-hmm. um, it gets too cold, doesn't get cold enough. You know, there, there's all kind of workarounds that you can do mm-hmm. uh, little tips and tricks, you know, but, um, I don't know. It seems like, you know, that's been something that maybe it's starting to change, but, uh, you know, guys like Jason hood and stuff that I think, you know, Jason and Derek and guys like that are trying to right. figure it out, doing experiments and and trying to mess around with it. I know you don't want to mess around with a clutch that, you know, I guess valuable clutch bring you very valuable, yeah. uh, you know, money. But like, it it just seems like that's one of those they fall in this weird spot where it's like you you don't want to mess with it too much. You just want them to hatch and get them going and call it a day, mm-hmm. so that there's more of them and you can sort of like. I guess maybe make your investment back if, if you want to look at it that way. But, um, you know, just like you're saying, do they have to go up and down and like all these different things? Like, where is that? Maybe we're keeping them too warm. Maybe they're not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I guess I'm just more considering that concept broadly, right? Like not just for the blackheads, but I would assume that even with a mother's best efforts, uh, shivering and keeping that clutch warm, there's probably a little bit of a dip at night, just, yeah. Because that's the way it goes, you know, and, and maybe that that would even be something that we can employ in our controlled, you know, right. herpstat incubators that would actually be of value um, yeah. to to development. You know, I don't know. Yeah, 100 percent. Just night drop everything. I'm very curious. I do. Degree. Yeah, right. I do. It, you know, maybe yeah. even only a degree or two, but maybe that yeah. makes a difference to the embryo. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. 
I do it um, all year long. I, I, whatever yeah. the temperature is in the room at night, it is what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really have adopted that over the years. Let the fluctuation in the room be it's natural. Don't stress about it. Right. And then, you know, over the years I've gotten the thermostats that allow night drops and I'm trying to have everything on that system where I can, you know, at least give them a few degrees at night throughout the year. So yeah. it, it has some, you know, some play, some natural give and take for them. Mm-hmm. But neither yeah. of you guys have done that with incubation, right? No, not artificial. I mean, what, you know, I kind of, right. I built my incubator and, you know, I, I followed the, you know, have a fan up top, replace the, the stock one. And, and I've got the heat running on the back, but I never like went so far as to dial in top corner, top right corner, middle <laughs> and to make it all exact. And I know it fluctuates a little bit. So I, I kind of sure. uh, expect that there's some fluctuation in my incubator, especially if I've got eggs in there as it's getting warm out here, it's, you know, it's keeping up to different seasons and things. So I'm sure there is a little bit of play in there because I'm not, you know, an expert incubator builder by any means. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I find too that I have to set back just in in enclosures. Like I have to set a night drop. I do a bigger night drop anyway because I I believe in that as good keeping. But before, when I was just trying to keep things the same, I still had to set a night drop. Otherwise, when my room naturally got colder at night, the heat would actually have to work harder to keep my probe where I set it. So my cages were actually going to be warmer at night than during the day because they're overcompensating, right? Um, so I had to set one just to keep them the same before I decided that I wanted it to be colder right. than the same. But you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Interesting. See, I just turned them off. They just go off. <laughs> That's good too. <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. You know. Hmm. Yeah. Might have I, to it, try that one year because it gets so warm here in the summer that like I could turn things off and in the room here, it would never get below 75 in, in most of the year. Mm. right which it's it's you know that was one of the coolest things about being in the environment right it's like before pre-eric before or or pre-australia eric right was like this idea that 70 degrees is cold for a python right Mm -hmm. that's too cold and then you're there and it's like oh wait a minute it is 70 degrees now. Like I'm dropping them to 70 degrees because I think that this is their trigger Mm -hmm. when reality, maybe temperature really isn't that much of a factor with certain pythons, you know, especially if they have the ability to warm back up. Yes. Yeah. 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 I got my brettles to 49 last night. Holy shit. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this. When you first did that, is this like the first time you did that? I did it with a pair last year. Um, it makes you nervous yeah. as hell, don't it? So I guess for me, it doesn't because they, no? they're my first breeding endeavor. Okay. So I have nothing okay. to compare it to, right? Like, I guess for me, it was just like Nick said, they can be cold. And it's the first thing that I'm doing with snakes. So I have no reason to fear it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you so you're, do, you're doing with, with cold what I did with maternal incubation. Like the first clutch. Yeah. Maternal incubation. Yeah. Not going to sweat it. I don't know any other way. Maybe for me, when I'm doing more tropical species, I'll be worried they're not getting cold enough because I'm so mm, used right. to dropping everything down. Mm, uh, yeah. But, you know, they, obviously, don't get me wrong. They don't need to be in the 40s, but they can be. Yeah. They'll be just fine. 
Yeah. yeah I've like, been... When I walk into the diamond room, it's just like, oh my God, this is cold. Like it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, I'm they're, cold. and they're and they're fine. It's so Even funny too when I pick them young up. Young ones I have, right? It's it's 50 degrees and they're out in that perching ambush thing. Right. <laughs> they're just waiting. Unreal. Know? It's like what the hell? That's temp, temp gun their body surface. I want to know the difference because I did that the other night. I got my brettles down to like 64 according mm-hmm. to the thermometer in the bathroom, which I'm starting to not believe anymore because, dude, I left the window cracked a couple inches the other night and it got below 30 that night. And it said, oh, it only got to 64. I'm like, bullshit. This animal is freezing cold. I'm touching it. It is cold to the damn touch. Right. And I temp right. gun the snake and the snake was like 62, like yeah. according to the surface temperature. But like, dude, I don't know. These, I, I don't know. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about. Um, trusting you know, hardware. Is, well, not trusting hardware so much, but like we, we have these rules that they have to get down to like 50. Mm. How much, like, is that for really consistent breeding or can I get lucky at low sixties according to what this is saying? Or, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I think about that all the time. Like how many people have had success not going down to fifties. And why, like, why did, I'm always curious about, and these are questions that I'm going to ask guys, especially when we do her history stuff is like, what, why, like, why did you think fifty? Did you do like sixty and nothing happens? Or you're like, oh, I'm going to drop it down another five. Oh, it's at fifty-five, and it's like I'm not seeing any action. And then all of a sudden, at fifty is like the magic number, and you just stop there. Like, yeah, I know. Be, you, you know, I don't. That just fascinates. Yeah, me. yeah, where did where did that mark come from? Did somebody right. incrementally try going lower each year until they mm-hmm. hit a happy medium, and then got too far and saw some negative effects, and then calibrated back up and Right. It's an interesting yeah. thought. I think in the case of, of Brettles, there is a passage in the Complete Carpet book where maybe it was Bedford actually did get temp guns on wild adults and, and winter and summer. And <laughs> I would have to right. go check for, for yeah. the actual numbers. But I think in the winter, the body temps were 50s, but I'm not okay. sure. I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Maybe I, always maybe get weird like how you i don't know it's like they won't breed until they get to this magic number that we have in our head you know it's like they they won't do it it's not gonna happen (laughs) it's a good question has that number really been tested or is it just kind of the dogma yeah yeah right it's like if it's don't if it's not broke don't fix it type of deal so that just Mm -hmm. became herp uh you know uh lore if you will you know folklore it's just yeah, there's a lot of that <laughs> for sure. For sure. You know, I don't know if you noticed this with the bread lie. So like, or I should say it correctly. Bradley, um, yeah. when, especially <laughs> since I have my Steve Irwin shirt on, <laughs> <laughs> um, when with the diamonds, right. I used heat panels for a while and then I've, as you can see, I'm slowly switching over to, um, to, basking spots right and i noticed that um when they you know it'll be cold the night before then they go and they they go and they bask and no they are hot to the touch like really hot and i i don't experience i don't know if it's just with diamond pythons i was curious if you guys had that with breadline bradley i i can't say that i've noticed that no no no. Yeah, I've never noticed it on my other carpets. 
but with these yeah. it's like they're actually physically warm to the touch and that jet black retaining that heat i guess That's yeah 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 i mean all my animals kind of feel like as cold or warm as the ambient is when i touch them not, no, but i'm also not, not using overhead basking so mm. now i, I do feel I that, that when i use heat panels so mm. i don't know if that makes a difference i see you know interesting yeah yeah, I'm working all radiant heat panels and two caged ceramics. So I'm not sure that I would notice that uh, just based on that. Well, those, those tend to, yeah, they tend to diffuse the heat out to, to help bring up the ambient, not as much as a basking uh, bulb would. Yeah, right. You use yeah. ceramic heaters and radiant heat panels and you'll find you'll get the ambient better. Exactly. And than, that's, that's why I'm doing, like, I don't have heat. So all of my cages need to be pretty self-regulated. Right. Mm -hmm. right. That's, that's the perfect application for ceramic heat emitters and, and heat panels. But if you, if you have some control over the ambient, you know, depending on the species, sometimes that can, you know, eliminate the appropriate thermal gradient to, to a, a negative degree, you know, mm -hmm. so like take it away too much. Totally. Yeah, uh, and then it depends on the type of enclosure you're using. You know what it's made out of. Does it insulate well? Does it allow mm -hmm. heat to escape? You know, uh, you know, glass allows everything to go right out. Wood and plastic sort of insulate a little bit better, so it, it depends. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff for sure. Yeah, I had um, to reset all my thermostats for the this apartment versus the place I was at before. Mm, like you know. to calibrate to get it where you wanted. Yeah, I had to recalibrate everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i, I like i kind of like letting things ride a little bit i like a little bit of a uh, lack of control and mm -hmm. accuracy on some of my stuff like i know i know it's in the right range but the precision isn't like 100 percent there and i kind of like it i kind of yeah. like that it's it fluctuates a little a little loosey-goosey to me it seems like a little um like manufactured and uh environmentally based you know, alterations and temperature fluctuation that would be almost natural. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Like the Kribos, they're completely ambient hundred percent of the time. What they, what they experience is what they experience. Um, some species probably wouldn't hang in this room, of course, but mm -hmm. it's perfect for them. And I, and I think that natural fluctuation is very healthy for them. So I try to implement that on some of these other species and, even though I have a bunch of species from all over the world in this one room, you know, selectively it works. So nice. Yeah. And that's why I need a house because I want more and I need to have rooms of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I feel it. <laughs> yeah. The, the never ending struggle, right? Space and resources. Yeah. No, Did I got to get another big cage before the blackhead comes home. So <laughs> yeah, you did. Did you guys happen to see this picture of this wild carpet? This, um, hold on. Work your magic. Do that whole screen. Oh, here. Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh. I did. Oh. Is and that you want, you, that's an imbricata right yeah. there. <sighs> I mean, first of all, the snake's incredible, but also just that picture. That like, shot even is. Even if there was no snake, that's nuts. That shot is very, very nice. But Eric, we yes. could have we could have seen that if it weren't for damn COVID. Yeah, I know, right? Bastards! <laughs> I'll get you one day, COVID, and that damn Qantas Airlines that stole my five hundred dollars. Oh dear! Uh, <laughs> I need to go to Australia. 
Hey, Ember Cotter, oh, man, pretty cool. And now that I'm like, I'm like rediscovering, um, um, you know, uh, monitors and Australian geckos and all these different things. I'm like, yeah. oh man, I need to, I need to go back so bad. Oh, man. dude, wait till like I have that same problem too. We just got a big group of white tree frogs in, and oh, so we got looking. some blue ones. They're like electric blue with some snowflakes on them. I'm like, oh, I need these again. And I remember getting magnificent frogs in at the zoo, and I was like, "These are the best. I want these too." And I'm like, "If only I had just an Aussie building, I could just do all of this." <laughs> I'm trying to do it. <laughs> how is yeah. uh, how has working with the Aki's been, dude? There, that uh, you know, I I haven't had a monitor in about 20 years, and um, I I, I love them. I think they're just they're so cool. They're so different than snakes you know they're just they're just different they're like they got like these little personalities to them mm -hmm. and like you know they're starting to become more comfortable with uh you know the big monkey that keeps looking inside their <laughs> world every day you know? um yeah have you tried uh, hand feeding them or anything yet like bugs yeah yeah i fed them um some chopped up eggs and stuff like nice. that and, uh, nice yeah it was uh yeah i'm loving them man i i I can see where you can fall into real trouble <laughs> if you, uh, if you, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I like uh, the other ones I really like are Kimberly Rock monitors, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which are in that same sort of mini monitor type mm -hmm. of uh, family. Uh, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, He's actually got uh, eggs. So. Oh, shit. No, oh, no. Just That's saying. Cool. I know a guy. <laughs> Eric, are yeah. you handling them at all, or are you more just kind of observing at this point? Uh, at this point, I'm just kind of observing, um, for sure, trying to get them comfortable and you know get them get them situated and you know. But it's like it's hard. At the first couple of week was hard for a couple of weeks were hard for me because when I would come in, I would I'm so used to the snake routine where you don't necessarily have to do something every day, you right? Know, you <laughs> sort of check them out, make sure everything's okay, and call it a day. And I'm like. Oh shit! I gotta feed these things. <laughs> like I keep yeah. forgetting. Like they gotta eat every day. You know? Yeah, especially so. when they're growing. When they get yeah. bigger, you can back off a bit and have more lax, you know, approach. But they're yeah. just so active. You'll always find that you need to like clean stuff out of their water or you know whatever it is, pick up poop, you know, stuff like that. So they they're definitely busy bodies. I know the feeling, man. I, I've got monitors around me all day at work, and it's just dangerous temptation. Yeah, I visited yeah, for a like, few hours and it was dangerous. To <laughs> <taste>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see, you know, I, I think I think I've kind of found my, you know, finally found my groove of what I enjoy and what I like. And that's, you know, all things Australia. Right. And it's sort of like, um, you know, OK, uh, I can see myself like I'd like to get I've always kind of wanted a blue tongue skink just to have one. You know, but mm -hmm. um, the one that Casey posted up today in the NPR chat, you know, I'm looking at the orange on those things and I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, those are amazing. Wild. You know, we've the got, fact that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we've got some some northerns bred by a, a local guy at the shop. And there's one in particular, the orange is coming in hot. I'm like, <laughs> I got to stop looking. Yeah. Robert Irwin posted one this morning. Oh, look at that Western. Oh, look at that. Is that a Western or an Eastern? That's a Centralian, ain't it? 
Oh yeah. Let's see if he says the, I, the, the Australian I, blue. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. No, that's right. The the westerns have black so, bands instead of those. Anyway. Yeah, what I find interesting about them, you know, obviously everything can turn back to carpets, and then in a minute, where maybe we can a- a- answer John's question. Yeah. Um, but um, yes, I was going to say, uh, you know, that if you look at them and look, you know, they're across Australia and where they're from, they sort of follow carpet pythons. You know 100%. what I mean? They're, they're like mm. the same pattern, color, same areas, same environments. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like. Mm-hmm. It's like a lizard carpet python is basically even even the the New Guinea stuff has dark yeah. earth tones all like the same thing, dude. It's crazy. The tannin bars are like the scrubs. It's exotic yeah. and pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's just kind of it's kind of wild to me that to me that alone makes them interesting. Um, I could see myself getting a couple geckos, Australian geckos. I really like the forests. Yeah, yeah, I love them things, man. Yeah. Um, I would love to get some some knobtails, I think. And mm, um, mm-hmm. there's another. What's the other guy? I'd love to get some of those leaf tail geckos. Yeah, the Aussie really ones. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But you know, we'll see. And then I've always, ever since I was a kid, wanted an Australian water dragon. I remember I had to get the Chinese version to Chinese mm-hmm. water dragon. And I was like, but it's not an Australian one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a species we're going to try and grab some babies of for the shop and have a colony of next. We're going to yeah. try and get some Aussie waters in for sure. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine. You need, can you imagine like a big, oh, colony, yeah. like mm-hmm. huge trees and looks like a tree's growing out of the you yeah, know, in the you know, like zoo style setup type thing. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, you can do them communally, have a male with a bunch of females, and yeah, so yeah. they're fun, they're cool, especially if you get big adults that red in the throat, they're just badass. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So John John uh Blondette asks, How do you guys dial in a room that has multiple species in it? Do you prioritize one over another or just try your best to average it all out? Well, go for, for it. me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've got the, the false water cobras, which are obviously a South American species. And then the, the Aru green tree and then everything else is Australia. Um, mm-hmm. But what I have to do here for myself is because I don't have any um, heat for like the room. Every, and I don't actually have heat in my apartment, period. So everything <laughs> falls as it will. So for me, every enclosure is is its own self-contained thing. And what that means for me is having a shit ton of herb stats. I have almost everything on their own herb stat, for each cage, um, so that I can make each one what it needs to be. Um, and I don't get very much heat transfer, like from... A to B. So I really can kind of do a self-contained environment for each one. Uh, the only exception to that being my one rack. Uh, but everything in there is pretty much good with the same temps because it's brettles and Wilmas. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, for, I mean, for me, I, you know, I kind of keep at this point, keep all australian stuff before that i kept mostly all pythons so i've never really had to balance like colubrids and um you know pythons or stuff like that um or north american versus australia um but um i have two separate rooms um that way i can keep diamonds the way they need to be kept um bread lie 
diamonds, inlands, all those spring species that need to get a little colder. Um, I put them in the cold room and all the other Aussie stuff is in the warm room. What I've been thinking of as of late, though, is like I'm thinking like, okay, I, I do that for carpets, but I don't separate them out as far as other python, like other Australian pythons, which I don't know, maybe may be an advantage if I'm dropping bread lie low. Should I put the walmas in here with them or, mm. you know, I don't know. Just I don't know. Mm. Just thoughts I think about, you know, or pygmy pythons mm -hmm. if they're coming from that same area. And, right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Riley, do you guys drop your Wilmas, by the way? Just real mm -hmm. quick. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, we uh so the advantage we have at the shop is that uh it's it's a big airspace and it gets as cold as we want it to unless we turn a heater on for the whole building. And because it makes it so easy to cool, we haven't had the the big ambient heater go on anything above like 55 60 for the back because everything's got its own self-contained source of heat mm -hmm. and we're leaving the snake room door open to allow that cold to go in shutting the heater vents that keep the bug room warm and and pass that on and then allowing a night drop in the in the enclosures and racks so they get a, a night drop on the hot spot plus a cooler ambient that way and we've been letting the womas hit 60s for sure cool yeah the way I manage my room, because I, I I don't know, like I've got stuff from North America, Madagascar, South America, Australia, Papua <laughs> New Guinea, Madagascar. Really <laughs> yeah. So I've got, and it, and it used to be worse. I used to have even more crap in here. That Didn't was you like, study like some international thing too in college? Like, are you yeah. just Mr. International? <laughs> yeah. So my like degree. Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no uh, ah, damn it i am bald like him too um uh no so yeah i did get a global and international studies degree so i kind of know how the environment all plays out in different places nice just that way but it's not the same as like actually going but i have traveled to some places and experienced some ambient differences which are the main thing so what i found is that there are certain species i would never get into because they, you know, if they need a higher ambient than what I can maintain or colder or they have more sensitivities that don't agree with the room, I just don't keep those species. So I, I work within the parameters I know this room can can perform at. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the, that in mind, I kind of know, you know, the, col the, the colder stuff is going to be on the floor. Right. You, know, you get a thermal gradient top to bottom. Stuff near the window is going to experience more cold than you know, stuff towards the, the insulated in inner walls. Right. Those so outer walls. Yeah. Yeah. I've got outer walls here, outer walls there. So the carpets are all touching the outer walls. So they get that's, some of that cold. That's a really great point. You can, you can set things up in a way where you're fighting yourself the mm -hmm. least. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, it's going to be colder on the floor. Heat rises, you know? Right. So that's a great point. So what I've done is I've tried to put the, the Bradley in the bottom, um, uh, I've got my male Kribo, uh, the big guy on the floor. And the reason I put the female up top is because they're just running ambient regardless. And I put her up there because I want her to get the photo period. The male, he's just a horn dog. He can see it and he doesn't need it. She, I want her to be in tune with as many variables as possible. And then she gets a little bit of radiant heat coming up from the, the rainbows below her and stuff. So you kind of play with zones within your room um, mm -hmm. that, you know, lead towards you know, certain species, like I have corn snakes in here 
and they're just on ambient. They just, I'm yeah. going to treat them the same as the car or uh, the Crebos. They're going to experience pretty much the same stuff. The Doomerals and the Rainbows, they have hotspot access, but it's much lower. And because their environment is rather warm anyway and equatorial, mm-hmm. um, the, the extreme heat that this room experiences is still agreeable for them. The cold that they experience in here is good for them. But if I was trying to work with, I don't know, something that can't get over 60. Like I couldn't, I couldn't work with satanic leaf tail geckos in here. I couldn't work with salamanders or newts in here. I couldn't mm-hmm. work with, um, yeah, like stuff like that. I wouldn't be able to sure. do species that can't handle things over 75 basically. Yeah. And, and that's where I struggle the most too. When we first moved into this place, it was like September, right? So our hottest period of the year in the Bay area. And we mm-hmm. had those heat waves, mm-hmm. um, I had to buy a portable AC for this room because it was getting hundred triple digits. Right. So Jeez. not, not cool. I'm on the second story. We don't have air conditioning in the Bay area. Cause it used to not get that hot very often. Yeah. <laughs> now it Never will. Used to. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I had, I had to do that. And like the green tree I, I keep in the living room, but I had to bring it into the, mm-hmm. into this room mm-hmm. and just cool everything down because yeah. I would have probably lost animals if I didn't. Yeah. The other thing that I do is I've got a, a Black & Decker heater in this room plugged into an Inkbird that I monitor from my phone. And I will adjust the the range, the limits for that Inkbird seasonally. So during the months I want it cool, I'll drop that down so it'll allow the ambient in this room to get to like 68, 66. Um, so I've hit some really freaking cold ambients in here, but it'll never let it go below what I want because everything in here I know can take high 60s, mm-hmm. sometimes even more. And then it shuts off at a certain point, at a certain high point this year. And then during the summer, it'll just be off. It just won't even turn on. I'll still right. be, it'll still be monitored by the inkbird, but it won't even turn on at all during the summer. For and, sure. and I know how this room operates after being in here for three years. So I know when to open the window, how much to open it, when to have the fan running, how long, 24 hours or, you know, just during the day and things like that. So you just kind of, you got to experiment a little bit um, when you're first mm-hmm. getting your room set up. There is some experimentation that goes on. But if yeah. you have talked to other breeders and people and figured out how they accomplish it and where they're at, you, you've you got this little mental stockpile of tools in your arsenal as far as like how do people approach the cold or the heat or whatever. And you can, you know, implement them as needed. So, yeah. And I don't, I, another one, just before we move on from this, did you run into a tricky situation or maybe no, you have AC, huh? Cause you're in Sacramento. I do, but it doesn't get back to this room. Okay. Well. Cause what I was thinking of is when we had peak wildfire mm-hmm. and it was also a heat wave, mm-hmm. I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Cause mm-hmm. I couldn't open windows without right. Ash, sweating pure ash into my room. Yeah, right. but I was also like, "Holy wow. crap, it's hot!" Uh, yeah. So if that's another thing that I struggle with now that we live in a fireplace. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. I so that's that's where um the blinds being open or closed makes a difference. Having fans on makes a difference. Um, you know, I I will. So we got super warm and ashy as well yeah. this summer. And so what I did was I kept my window closed. I even closed the blinds a little bit um, because the blinds make an insulating difference. And mm-hmm. so then I'd open my door and I know the AC doesn't get back here very well, but over the course of, you know, six, to, six or so hours, it would, it would keep the, 
the heat down a bit, but not as much as I like. There were some days I, I came home from work and this room was 90 and I was like, I don't like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge and something I didn't, you know, you don't anticipate having to deal with toxic air and not being able mm-hmm. to open your window. <laughs> right. So then actually another thing to pay attention during that time I was really diligent on was changing waters more frequently because mm-hmm. it was evaporating more and going bad faster. Mm-hmm. I was also taking ice cubes once a week and dropping them in, in certain water bowls nice. for animals that I know were not, not happy. Like the Kribos, yeah. I chucked a ton of ice cubes in. like, here you go. Yeah. So for sure. For yeah. sure. Do you, with those Inkbird uh, thermostats, <clears throat> is it just, um, are they all made for those space heaters type things? or They're made it... for a lot of different things. Whatever sort of temperature control, whether it be a heater or an AC unit, you can have it on there. As long as it can uh, handle being turned on and shut off proportionally as needed, it can mm-hmm. it can apply to anything. Gotcha. Okay. So, and I just use that to keep my, I monitor my ambient with that. That's how I manage the ambient. Um, if I were in a bigger room, I would also invest in a, an AC unit and have that plugged into one as well. Um, and I think you, you can even then get like Vornado humidifier, like big units that also have sort of thermostats built in. So they'll kick on proportionally as needed based on what you set your humidity requirements for. So you can oh, really, really, you could do it with humidity. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, Brian Cusco, he's got one of these big Vornado place uh, things at his house with two reservoirs on the side, and it's got its own thermostat in it. So it, it can pick up the ambient room. So he doesn't need an ink bird for that. It's self-contained sort of thermostat oh, wow. in that, that humidifier. So you could pay for like an advanced one. I, I'm assuming it's like 120 bucks for that one. I've done some brief looking into it. And his snake room is the size of a, a you know, one and a half, car garage sort of by square footage that's not a thing but um it's big enough to fit as a mine yeah yeah exactly it might even be it's like longer too and he's got a wall that hits the garage too so um but yeah it's 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 a really good humidifier so there's technology out there ink birds for your your heater and uh, ac units and then you either get one for uh, a simple humidifier or you buy you know a top end humidifier that has it and then you can you can plug and play how you want. I have. I, I just. I recently. The oh, Vornado yeah. Vape Forty, and uh, it can handle. It's rated up for two hundred fifty square feet, and you know if it runs long enough, it'll eventually work. In uh, probably like, an even bigger room. What I've been trying to do is is that when and I've been doing this manually, but like I have a humidifier, especially during the winter. I do this more often than not, but like as the temperatures come down and the temperature in my room starts to drop and probably, I guess right now it's getting dark here, like five o'clock, 5 PM, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll turn that humidity on so that at night the humidity in the room is high Mm -hmm. and then it comes off during the day when the heat comes on. So it's kind of like doing this fluctuation. That's pretty natural too. You know, like that's exactly how it works. That's why morning dew happens. That's why, the right. evening's cooler and clouds rolling in, in cloud forested mm-hmm. areas. So I think that's a great way to go. And what I've noticed is, is like on some, especially with baby tubs and stuff, like there's, um, do you know, you'll get, you'll get dew that's on the front of the tub. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, to me, that it, it's gone by the, you know, by the mid morning or whatever, mm-hmm. but like, uh, it, to me that 
I think that just helps with hydration, you know, because oh, I yeah. think that 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 a lot of times they rely on that type of uh, uh, humidity to get mm-hmm. hydrated. You know, I think about that, and and I th- and I use for my mental wherewithal. I think about the finicky, sensitive nature of chondros with that, and how yeah. different approaches to husbandry, uh, like whether it be ceramic heat emitters or heat panels or whatever, can implement or. Uh, it impact the uh, the moisture retention of an enclosure and then the variables of ventilation and things. And, and I think about that because it's very sensitive with them. Obviously carpets are much more bulletproof, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, a lot of the times some people have issues with chondros because of dehydration and then they start changing up how they administer the water, whether it's a, an arboreal bowl or a bigger bowl on the bottom or they're misting, or, you know, there's the mm-hmm. debate of misting versus not misting. Right. You know, is it because their their environment isn't humid enough or they're not going down to drink? I think there's all of that at play. And and so it's much more problematic and discussed and focused on in the chondro world because it it is such a, a challenge. But carpets being so bulletproof, it's not as as big of a challenge, but it's still important, I think, to a degree, mm-hmm. like you're saying. That's and, why, yeah. that's why they're clearly the superior of the. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean. My carpets think before they bite me. Chondros <laughs> just do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my, um, you remember Matt Moyle from Carpet mm-hmm. Fest, right? All right. Mm-hmm. Remember, did he? Did you get to talk to him about his Chondro oh, yeah. enclosure? Wasn't oh, yeah. that freaking amazing? Like, yeah. he has this fan set up that it sucks out the. Mm-hmm. So he'll he'll somehow raise the humidity in the enclosure, right? But the kiss of death for you know usually when you're spraying or raising the humidity is that you start to get mold because that mm-hmm. balance is sort of out of whack mm-hmm. but somehow he has this setup where it sucks it all out and then it starts all over again so it just continually goes through this process to where you know it, it's not stagnant air it's not you know you're not gonna yeah, run didn't, mold didn't he say he cut uh he cut holes for like little computer fans the little muffin yeah. fans yeah. One was cool. one was blowing in, one was pulling out. Right. Yeah. And you can run fans on thermostats with an ink bird the same way. Yep. Yeah, that's brilliant. And again, you know, air stagnant air is bad for all animals and for us too. So it's you know, that's like taking it up to a science level of managing the air space within a cage. Cause that's very yeah, important yeah. too. The bigger the cage, the harder it is to manage the airspace, but the more stable yeah. it will be if you dial it in. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean it's taking ventilation from a passive to an active system. And you know, that that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I like his approach in as far as like, and and I, it could be that I'm just not in this, in these circles to where I see these conversations. But one of the things that I would all in, in the past that I would see um, when people would talk about misting or not misting with, especially with green trees, right. Is mm-hmm. that they never really talked about why you wouldn't or why you would, you know, it's just like, no, don't miss. You, you don't have to miss them. Why are you missing them? You know, it's and, like a dogmatic thing. Yeah. 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 And it's like, they never really got into, and again, maybe they did. And I just missed these conversations, mm-hmm. but it just seemed like they never got into the, why you would do it versus what, what is your argument not to do it? And what is your argument to do it? You know, because I see, and then, and then I think what happens a lot of times, and you know, I've talked to Rob about this because where Rob's from, it's so dry. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's 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 working with a different palette of uh, you know parameters that he sort of has to 
figure out how to get this snake to be healthy in captivity. Whereas I don't struggle with those same things, say being on the East coast or people in Florida, you know, they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It, it definitely depends right, on where like you're at. Talking chondros, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> it's this whole, this whole show based around drinking coffee. The coffee's got to go somewhere eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I just had the refill. Um, yeah. Well, here's um, a, yeah. The disaster wait. plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Absolutely. Do you have one? I do. I do. Yeah. I what I am aware of as my biggest threats here are evacuation from fire, even though I'm I'm in a fairly good spot for that. But it's still possible. Right. The Oakland Hills are right behind me. Um, right. and there's a lot of regional parks that can burn. Um uh-huh. so for for that. I make sure that I have a plastic bin and a pillowcase for every animal that I have. Um, and right. it, it's just, and I know Riley has actually had to evacuate from fire before. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah, yeah. So it, for rough. me, in terms of preparedness for that, it's having a pillowcase and a bin for each animal. I have um, heat packs uh, in case I need to provide non-electric heat at some point. Um, another good trick, right. Is to, to put warm water in a, in a water bottle. That's another one. If you find yourself in a, in a pinch without mm-hmm. electricity. Um, and then the other one is earthquake. Uh, and so, you know, we're overdue. Uh, yeah, no, 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 don't jinx that shit. I don't, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm not very superstitious. I apologize. Uh, My mom was actually on the Bay bridge when it, when it went in 89, um, oh, on the San Francisco I was, side, I was three yeah. months old, but my mom took me to Venice that weekend, so we missed out. <laughs> we, we we would have been up shit creek without it was a paddle. You, oh, okay. <laughs> well, good. Glad you weren't here. But you know, for that one, I try to be cognizant of my cage placement. So my tallest stack is the one you see behind me. That's probably my my riskiest situation. Um, so what I did with that is I went to the hardware store. I got a bunch of big wood screws and little metal hinges and I screwed everything together so that there's Mm -hmm. no, uh, slipping and sliding. Mm -hmm. And then, um, there, there are these kits, uh, that you can drill things like bookshelves into the studs of your home. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I have yet to find a stud that I can do that with in this apartment, but yeah. it's a work in progress and, and that's the plan. Um, but at the very least, uh, I'm not getting going to have slipping and sliding. And yeah. I think that they're pretty wide at the base where I doubt they'll tip over on me like that. But you know, it's something to think of. I don't, I can't stack as high as people that don't live in a seismically charged area. <laughs> yeah. In Santa Barbara, our uh, safety and security director at the zoo was a stickler about, you know, disaster preparedness and he was ph- phenomenal at it. And so in the back of the reptile house, we had this wall of vision cages and everything was on a, a wooden platform that was built for them. Mm. Uh, all the cages were Velcroed together in between the layers. Yeah. There were uh, ratchet straps over the entire top stack. So it ratcheted it to the base. And then they had concrete anchor bolts in the wall so that the top of the cages had bolts that would then bolt into the wall. So the whole thing yeah. was attached to a platform 
weight would keep it in place and then everything was you know connected and then held to the wall totally and then all of the main displays were built into the wall and bolted to the wall as well so everything was super secure um yeah as, as far as what i've kind of maintained is i maintain an exorbitant amount of pillowcases deli cups containers i always have that stuff all reptile people you know have that stuff around and i've got an entire big like uh, tote bag in the top of my closet that's like my bug out bag it's got rolls of heat tape already with connections like so i could roll out an 80 foot strip of heat tape in just one line or something like that nice. if right. like you know natural disaster i find myself in a freaking gym or some shit or somebody's garage and uh and so i just bring enough lamps and bulbs and heat tape sections and backup thermostats and things so in a pinch if i'm just at somebody's living room i can lay animals out and throw a heat tape strip down and set it at like 80 just to keep things warm or whatever. And that's what I had to do twice. Fortunately, um, you know, one time I went to a friend's house and he had space in his reptile room. So they just lived at ambient for a while. And then the other time I went to another friend's house and he had space in his racks and the ambient was okay. So I got lucky both times, but you also have to be prepared to efficiently stack them in your car and get them going. So you need bigger mm -hmm. tubs. Pillowcases work best because then you can put like 40 animals in one bin and just cross your fingers. They don't soil them, everybody in one go. Right. Um, but that's at least your worries. Bring, you know, in your bug out bag, bring disinfectant and paper towels to uh, yeah. extra pillowcases. Go buy out your local Walmart or something. And uh, and if you wanted to take it a step further, you know, keep inventory on all the animals. So and renter's insurance, homeowner's insurance, if you're a homeowner. Very important. Very important. So, yeah. I've never, I mean, for me, probably, see, I have the opposite of you guys. Like the threat for me would be cold, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, ice, which mm -hmm. would then call power, cause power outages, which at those temperatures where you would have such an issue, you're usually talking about like in the single digits yeah. where that can be quite a challenge. So yeah. really it just comes down to a generator is really what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you're a homeowner, have a generator period. Yeah. Backup. It's always good. And you can get, they don't have to be these huge generators, um, you know, for, to run my reptile room. It's not, not that big at all, you know, and that's yeah. really, for me, that's really my concern. Like, I can sort of, you know, and, and then, you know, it always sort of happens. Like if you have eggs in the incubator, that was always uh, something to worry about, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> it's scary what? to think about. <laughs> I've, I've told this story before, but like when, uh, you know, I was going to do maternal incubation and I, I didn't, uh, the female had the two eggs out of the clutch, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I should have just let it roll. But, you know, I got nervous and I ripped the eggs away from mom and had to take them to <laughs> Owen. And I just stuck <clears throat> a whole bunch of towels in the um, in the dryer, got them real mm -hmm. nice and warm, mm -hmm. um, got a heat pack. And I wrapped the, those eggs in that heat pack and the towels. And uh, luckily, Owen was just 15 minutes away from me. But um, I transported right. those eggs from my incubator, from my house. Um, at ambient in the freezing cold it was like 15 degrees oh. to his house 15 mm. minutes away and all those eggs hatched perfect nice wow that's awesome so and we've also seen you know if you just 
don't plug in the incubator, they still might hatch. So here's a question. That's yeah, true. Owen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for experimenting unintentionally, Owen. Yeah. Would you guys, so now with the way things are in California and the infrastructure, whenever we have really bad fire danger and super high winds or high temperatures, PG&E shuts down a lot of the grid, mm -hmm. right? And so my portable air conditioning that is my way of protecting the animals from the heat wave would then be useless. Ooh. And I don't know that I can have a generator because I don't have a yard. Yeah. So any thoughts on oh. how to cool cages without access to electricity? Cups of ice. Cups of ice oh, is yeah. best you can do, huh? Pro yeah. I think you could probably get a generator. I mean, they make like tabletop generators that could probably hmm. run an AC unit that you don't necessarily need, you know. That'd be worth looking know. into. Mm -hmm. It would yeah, have to be something that's... Tell me about them. It would have to be something that's safe to do in an enclosed room because don't right. most the generators fumes. run off gasoline? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's got to be something. I think well, they make some all the other shit we're anti-solar kinds, but I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Is there That's some the kind of I unit have. that you could think of like the power brick for your phone? Right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think I think this is the concept, right? You have like a power brick type of deal, and that's what this generator sort of is, right? You would just make sure that it's powered up, mm -hmm. and then you would have X amount of hours to use. Mm -hmm. you know, Tony is suggesting a computer backup battery system. It sounds like it's probably the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. I would imagine any sort of uh, uh, computer software and, and data management companies have multiple backup systems for something like that that keep charged up first. Yeah. So that's probably the way to go. Something to look into before next summer for me, because it's kind of just the, the uh, you can't rely on having electricity anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, because... It's crazy. It's crazy how that works because here in Sacramento, half of the city is on PG&E and then there's another half that's on a local municipal district sort of power grid, which is what I'm on. Mm. So during all the PG&E crap, I'm like, well, I'm You're chilling. I yeah. still got power. <laughs> I was the same way when I was in Alameda. They have their own Alameda municipal, but now I'm back in a PG&E yeah. area. So that's that's like the, the my number one concern in my house hunting so no PG&E, or is it on PG&E? Because <laughs> I don't want to do it if I don't have to. Yeah, PG&E is just trying to dodge all these lawsuits. They're like, we didn't start the fire; our power was off. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a crazy windstorm uh, four or five days ago, and it yeah. like it literally looked like a tornado ripped through the park on my way to uh, like eucalyptus trees were down, she oaks down. Literally looked like a bomb went off, and just trees were obliterated everywhere. Cars were smashed, like roads were blocked. It was chaos. And, uh, and so a part of, uh, part of Sacramento lost power for a few days. And I yes. had some folks call into the reptile shop. They're like, do you have any tips? Do you have any of those yeah. heat packs? What can we do? And I was just like, oh crap. My friend know. that bought the Mexican black King from you guys was in that boat. She lost power. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for a couple of days, it's not terrible as long as your ambient isn't dropping. But when it happened, the nighttime lows were in the thirties or below out here. So yeah. it was like the worst possible combination. And people like people were like, what am I just going to do? Sleep with them, put them in my jacket in the bed. It's like, hey, good luck. I, I don't know. I, I, mm, heat packs. Warm water bottles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. scary to think about, you know, super scary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. disaster planning 
is yeah. important no matter what. And then all the more important when you're planning for other living things besides yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a lot. Yeah. Stressful to think about. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, <laughs> I thought that uh, this would be an interesting topic to get your guys uh, thoughts on. Um, I saw it over on, um, I think it was on the carpet Python discussion board. Um, but Billy Hunt had posted a, a question and it says, basically, here's a question I've had for a bit. When it comes to outcrossing, at what point do you stop calling the offspring from the outcross pairing outcrosses? Do you ever? For- oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, what happened here? Whoops, um, wrong button. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, so unprofessional. <laughs> oh well so in style. <laughs> it's <hell>? live <laughs> we're, fuck it we're going it's live the NPR days right yeah. outcross um, huh? alright so do you, uh, um, for example you have a line that has a couple of animals that are pure whatever that makes th- that line that line genetic knowledge tells us to keep those animals strong you have to outcross now you outcross your first generation those animals are 50% that line so are they outcrosses the next breeding one of those 50% animals back to the pure animal making 75% on and on and on at what point do you stop calling the animals outcrosses or do you ever hmm. do you lose that line as soon as you outcross mm. <laughs> well so i guess that sort of plays in with locality stuff it's sort of the same thing if you only have one line of locality how do you? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. You are going to lose the one hundred percent in in time, but if you didn't outcross, you'd probably lose the line in time anyway. Um, because yes, inbreeding depression in reptiles is not as uh, severe and quick acting as in mammals, but it does exist and it mm-hmm. absolutely will lead to problems eventually. Mm-hmm. So I guess the way that I see this is if you do nothing, you're headed off a cliff. And if you do outcross, no, you're not going to have the hundred percent anymore, but if you're honest about the percentages, at least you have something viable but maybe the inbreeding depression works at a scale that's so slow t- anyway that it wouldn't necessarily matter in our lifetimes. But then do we care about the next generation of keepers? You know, I don't know. That's a really tricky one. Yeah. I think about yeah. that as far as the the label dilemma with dwarf and super dwarfs and retics and how unless it's less than 50%, most retic people tend to just include it as a footnote as a percentage of the animal whereas if it's 50 percent or above they you know it, it counts as a super dwarf or a dwarf according to their colloquial rules um i hesitate to use that as an <laughs> example just because morelia people are much better than retic people whoa um, and, uh, what um the community i mean uh anyway we're we're good people yeah. uh, superior um the views of mr jemison do not rep no just kidding <laughs> yeah exactly disclaimer <laughs> i don't know what i'm talking about um no i i think i think about how that plays into it and their 50 percent cutoff 
you know, and your point, Lucas, being if you just keep going the pure route, eventually you you drown it in inbreeding depression and, and it dies. So I think I think it's a line or deserves the title, you know, whatever line, as long as it's legitimately in there and and uh and if you know you can you can accurately show that it hails from that line i think mm-hmm. you know eventually if you keep going you might not even have 50 percent or 75 percenters anymore and eventually if it keeps going you might have you know minimal percentage in there over time as the 50 percenters age out and die if it's maintained that well so i think I think calling it, you know, X line of, of animal is, uh, it's, it's just a label. It's just all about, you know, accurate representation mm-hmm. that you can call it. I think anything can be called a line if it's part, if it's, you know, been reproduced several times, if it's part of it, I don't know if there's like three or four different like lines to it, then I don't call it a, a line of just one thing. Cause then there's all these things. So I don't know. Well, I think an example of this in carpet pythons would probably be Jason Balin's tiger carpets, right? Yeah. So he has what he calls the original line where animals that were from them, uh, that original pair of tiger carpets that sort of, um, you know, <laughs> have become established. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, he's outcrossed it. He's outcrossed it numerous times, but we still call it a tiger. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. but if you outcrossed like a Brisbane locality, yeah, year, yeah. We, well, we don't. You know, yeah, I, I think I, in I, the, mean, in I the, understand yeah. why you don't call that locality that locality yeah. anymore, but right. like because it's not. Well, eventually, <laughs> eventually, the localities you're going to have to outcross, and then eventually, yeah. it's not just going to be called a locality; it's going to be a line that hails from pure localities that no longer exist. Correct. Yeah, the locality thing is so tricky because there is such value to us as keepers in knowing where something is from. It's, but but at the same time, like we're never going to get, it seems like, access to animals from that locality easily again, right? So I don't know exactly the history of, of the Brisbane's, um, but let's take Ruffies, for example. Every captive Ruffie is descended from the three wild yeah. uh, adults that were taken for Australian reptile park. Right. Yep. We're not out crossing that, <laughs> you know, the option's not I mean, even there, but right. like for something like the Brisbane's, the option is there to have a stronger gene pool. So it's, it's a give and take, you know, can, do you want to keep calling something Brisbane's or do you want to have healthy, viable populations? Um, I kind of think like for me, and I, I don't know where this gets lost and, and maybe, maybe NPR is, is maybe part of this because I've never been maybe specific on how I approach this. Like I've always wanted to acquire as many bloodlines of carpets as I can, localities of carpets as I can, because I want the ability to outcross myself, right? Mm. So if I have each line of bread line, right? I have a fours and, you know, uh, price and, and LASIK and you know, the hypo and right. you know, on and on. Right. So mm-hmm. if, if I, I can outgrow, I'm like, I'm not looking to make more price line animals, if you will, mm-hmm. but I want to have that genetic diversity so that I can, 
you know? Right. Um, and th- that's really cool because you know that when you're breeding, say, a, a, a price line to a hypo or or a Harris line, you know right. you're mixing fresh genes in there because you know what you have. Um, right. At least in theory, I think. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, is it's unavoidable. Cool. That's the future. It's unavoidable. We're going to have to outcross these things at some point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you take something like Gelatins, Port Douglas, uh, what's the other, Rockhamptons, Brisbane's, which, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not localities. I, you know, I, but I also take that all with a grant. To me, the most, to me, and again, just for my own eyes and what I've seen in my own little world of, you know, my personal thoughts is that, you know, the closest that I've seen is the gelatins to the, to the gelatins that I've had. Like to mm-hmm. me, they seem like a legitimate, you know, locality, mm-hmm. whether that's true or not, like we totally wrong, you know, right. but they, they, the characteristics sort of mimic what you, what, what I saw in the wild. Whereas Brisbane's, mm-hmm. they didn't look anything like the Brisbane carpet that I saw. Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Not even close. Yeah. So, and know, sometimes animals from exactly the same place are going to have that natural variation. Yes. And that's yeah. why we love carpet pythons is because they have so much variation. So why do we expect them all to look the same? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like I've yeah. seen two gopher snakes that didn't even look the same, like within a 20 foot radius, you know? Same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I don't know. Animals are a, in a constant state of evolution and flux. And we're just seeing this little window of it as it's happening. Just a snapshot. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Which is kind of wild, man. When you think it's not wild, you know? dude, it's trippy. It's <laughs> trippy to think about what we're going to have as far as our perspective, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, looking back on all of this and then looking at that moment and how things are in that moment will be different. Right. Yeah. Dude. Which is, uh, which, which is a good, which is a good segue into, uh, her history, right? Yeah. You know, the whole idea of that, you know, series is that it sort of captures what's been in the past and hopefully we've sort of captured the past 10 years on NPR, mm-hmm. you know, and other podcasts that have been around and whatnot, but like, um, you know, uh, so yeah. that people 20 years from now, if we're still here or still <laughs> keeping, you know, who knows what's going to happen anyway. Right. I mean, the way you guys argue are talking with that. about the, uh, <laughs> Uh, the end oh, of the world just, over there on the west coast. <laughs> I mean, you got earthquakes and fires, and you know, I don't just know. Just gotta move eventually. Get just out of get the, the hell out of here. <laughs> uh, move um, to Australia. So, oh, well, yeah. Or I would say too, it now is a very wise time. I don't know what the rules are, but now would be a very wise time to buy private property on Antarctica. <laughs> For when it is a very pleasant, <laughs> temperate, forested continent. Yeah. Oh God. You could just take your a little ride to Australia then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They used to be connected. Oh, I learned recently, which is cool. Yeah, but maybe, uh, uh, global warming. The uh, <laughs> come back. Oh no, the water levels are rise. Never mind. Yeah, they're going up. Hmm. But anyway, staring at me. Talking about herp history, and you know, obviously looking into the past is very fun, but. Looking into the future can be fun too. Do you think yeah. Owen Pelly or Embracado will become available first? If ever. I kind of think that if and if either one stood a chance, I in my opinion, it would probably be Owen Pelly would you would see first. 
And I think it's because just Western Australia and their rule. I mean, people on in other parts of Australia can't really have Western Australia reptiles, you know? Cause think about it. Think about all the people that you see from, from the East coast. The only person I know that I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's people that have imbricata, but you know, the only people that I know is Scott. Hmm. That's true. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. know anybody else that's like over in Queensland that's working with imbricata. And if they are, they're probably keeping it hush hush. So, Hmm. Whereas you see a ton of people, well, not a ton, but you know, more considering how rare Owen Pelly's are, um, you see, you see a lot of people working with them. Hmm. Surprisingly, you know, which is cool. You know, that, that project is just, I don't know, man, that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother thing. Would you get an Owen Pelly? Hell yeah. <laughs> they get pretty big, right? Like what's, what's in this? Don't, don't think about it. Just get it. Okay. Yeah. Riley's right. They're long and slender though. Like a scrub. You know what I mean? They're mm. like super, super th- like thin, but really long. So gotcha. No. Yeah. I'd what am I talking one. about? Of course I'd get one. What the hell? That, 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 would, <laughs> be, yeah, man. that would be a yes. yes There's please. no question here. I'll take four. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would jump on that. Like, man. Yeah. That would be cool to be able to see them and, observe that i would have that enclosure decked out you know <laughs> that that would be a species that could get me to get rid of a few species entirely right. here in this room for sure they change color you know um it's just there's just a mystique about them to me there's just yeah the about them you know yeah, they're cool. even more so than roughies you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i remember the first time it was derek roddy it was on reptile radio you know, they were talking about Australian pythons and, you know, they're talking back and forth. And, you know, I think one of the questions that came up is like, if you could have any Australian python, what would it be? You know, and Derek, you know, in true awesome Australian herper form says, Owen Pelly and Sorry, Larry man. and BT are like, what the hell is that? I've never <laughs> heard of this, you know, like, and I'm like, oh my God, he said Owen Pelly. He's going to talk about it. You know? <laughs> hell yeah. That's funny. Uh, yeah, that's a species that needs to get get over here and turn the volume down on that bull and I nonsense. Hmm. Bull and I are cool, but not for ten grand. So, op is now that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, I would probably spend a significant amount of money to get an op. Yeah, and you know that's what I don't understand with when it comes to I just. You know, I guess it's just, you know, again, politicians jacking yes. up again. You know, Yeah, they don't it's see like, how the commercialization actually benefits. They only think about how it's just consumption of animals yeah. that is so one-sided. I think, again, too, that also goes back to the, uh, the uh, concept of how do non-reptile people view reptile people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of all of our jobs. To, they think to we're just out here people. robbing the, the natural gems of the earth. Right. And kind of that unflattering stereotype that people that are into this aren't necessarily in it f- because they like animals, but right. maybe, you know, more of a status thing or like, oh, right. just trying to be like metal dude. Like, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I know definitely there's people that when I tell that I keep a fair amount of snakes, they're like, you don't look the type. 
I'm like, what, what are you talking about? What's the type? You know? Yeah. No, I talk about this all the time with a, a friend of mine locally. She's been keeping reptiles for a long time. She's a little bit older than me. And she remembers coming up in reptiles where the, the stigma was you're a biker with tattoos. And those were the dudes that kept reptiles. Right. And uh, you were just, you know, kind of a ruffian. And that's how everybody right. must have issues. Them. But nowadays it's so different. You got people that are well spoken, wearing collars, have no tattoos, listen to laid back music and fancy you know, letters after their name. Yeah. Yeah. And collect books, you know, and wear glasses. And you know, it the the culture is changing around reptiles. It's definitely become much more mainstream, but there'll always be some stigma, right. at least for the next coming generations. Yeah. I think that probably social media had a lot to do with the yeah, uh, you know getting rid of those stereotypes and stuff um yeah you know because yeah. when i was growing up it, that's how it was you know mm -hmm. if you you kept reptiles you were either weird or some sort of biker yeah. dude you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing and yeah. um must like watching rats get murdered yeah like yeah. mentally not okay and that, <laughs> and, and that that was i knew people like that you yeah know? they're out there it's not like sure. they didn't yeah. exist but sure. you know it's yeah it's just a matter um, of not letting that be what identifies the entirety of the community, you know, that's where voting think, with your dollar comes into play. That's right. I think, I think that, um, I think that this is why, you know, I, I forget what we were talking about yesterday or the other day. And I was sort of saying along the line, like I usually try to keep quiet on these things, but there's a certain person that, uh, we're not going to talk about, but mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a shady, shady type of person and, mm -hmm. you know, gets all these accolades from people about how great he is. And I'm just like, what? And, um, I, you know, meanwhile, we'll argue with each other about, you know, keeping it in this box or that box, you know, mm -hmm. and he's, and then like, you know, oh, you shouldn't keep reptiles. You're horrible. You know, getting personal with people and all. But meanwhile, the person that gives two shits about the animal's welfare you know, we're just sending them money, you know, and it's mm -hmm. just like, I, I, I don't understand that thing. And this is why I'd like to support people that are, are more of the, how do I say this? Not like, like more of a pet keeper, right? So like the idea that you don't have to be a breeder and I can have these elaborate setups for these animals where they're going to live these awesome lives. And like, come on, let's face it. Like the average person that, you know, that maybe would want to get a reptile you know, they may see a breeder set up and they say, well, why do I want a snake when I don't see it? It's in a rack. I never, you know what I mean? Like it, to me, it, this is sort of the conversation that I always had with my dad. He's like, you know, when you keep like this, like what enjoyment do you get out of it? You don't see the animal at all. You know, it's kind of yeah. like, what's the point? You know, yeah. whereas like if you have a setup and now people are starting to see that more and more where that perpetuates that you know, I can have a couple of these animals in an apartment and I can have it instead of having a fish tank, you know, I can have right. this little piece of Australia or South America or, you know, whatever, you know, and um, yeah. I think that's a positive thing for the for the reptile and to help push that. Uh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, re responsible keeping, um, evidence based keeping and, you know, just Being propping up person. people that care about <laughs> the animals. And, yeah. And Being a good actually, person. Yeah. Or, or at Being least a mentor to the next generation. Right. Yeah. I, I think that Being just kind of Being understanding. shifting the public narrative to mm -hmm. more of that side of things yeah. and, and 
the average person thinking of that kind of person when they think of people that keep yes. reptiles would mm-hmm. unlock a lot of of the shackles that are placed on that kind of legislation um, yeah. and whatnot. But, you know, that's a, that might be a pipe dream yeah. that that's even possible, you know, because the, there are bad actors and there always yeah. will be. Yeah. The, the, the thing that I always keep in perspective um, when choosing who to spend money with or affiliate with or uh, align with in this hobby is uh, there's two things, two, two kind of cheesy phrases. The first one is the, the empty barrel make rattles the loudest, makes the most noise, right? Mm-hmm. So the folks that tend to have the the least to offer tend to be the ones shouting for the most attention. So that's a good way to tell who's probably full of shit. And then uh, and then the other thing is a, a, a clever man knows what to say, a wise man knows when not to say it. And that's just kind of those are the two things that I try to keep in mind and think about when I'm seeing all this content that's being put out and some of the decisions I make and just who I associate with and what I associate with. So just some food for thought. Mm-hmm. That matters, man. You know, yeah. that, that, that yeah. does, you know, cause yeah. um, I think uh, haha, I have to put this up because Craig. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have to worry about it. Cause IJs can still get imported. Yeah. Owen's that's not here. True. We don't have to convince anybody. Yeah, IJ's rock. <laughs> yep. yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and on that note, you know, what we'll say is if you want to vote with your dollar, don't forget to go to the Teespring store <laughs> and, and, and get yourself some good swag from the NPR network. Just go to teespring.com, type in NPR store. The other thing you can do to vote with your dollar and support what Eric and Owen have been doing for going on 10 years now is you could join Patreon for the NPR network. For just five bucks a month, you can buy those guys a cup of coffee and get them going. Uh, eventually, we'll be getting some more tiers out there. If y'all are itching to, to send them more money to do stuff, um, that'll be going on too. And uh, in the meantime, you can get some swag, support the good people, buy some coffee, support the good people. You know how it goes. Uh, yeah. Did you guys get your coffee cups yet? No. No? No. Oh. The mail yeah. around here has been so screwed up. It's horrible, man. <laughs> Seriously. It's been you so sent bad. Those, like months ago, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it'll come eventually, I'm sure. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Just have so, to check in. Yeah. I was checking in. Nipper didn't get his Arizona book yet. He's he's going into, uh, you know. Dude, I got a Christmas call. present from Sweden in yeah. nine days faster than it took for something to come from Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say, man. I don't know. I don't know. So another thing that's broken in the U (laughs) S damn it. Can't even do mail. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I bury my head in my snake room. So that's right. What happened to those pigeons we used to use? Oh yeah. Oops. They all died. Shot. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, wonderful. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Good I stuff, think, guys. Uh, any any final thoughts you guys want to hit on? I gotta go pick up uh pick up a king snake and some liners and go get lunch. Ooh, yeah. I'm gonna go vote with my dollar uh for a sandwich. Ooh, I was thinking the same thing. Uh like how you guys are thinking, but it's more like dinner time here for me. So uh, yeah. <laughs> go get yourself a, a, a pre-dinner post-lunch Philly cheesesteak. There you go. Yeah, so, man. Philly uh, cheesesteak, man. There's nothing beats. Nope. At least nope. we do something right in Philly. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, man, the best, the best. Uh, no. 
for sure. Right on. Yeah. Sweet. Always fun, guys. Always fun. Awesome. Thank you to everyone who's joined in the chat, who's been listening. Thank you to everyone who's listened to this after, after it's been recorded and launched. It'll be up on uh, podcast format soon. And uh, don't forget to support uh, the NPR network on YouTube and social media and everywhere else. Support EB Morelia, Rogue Reptiles, all that good stuff. And all the platforms we do it on, it's everywhere. You can't miss it. And yeah, man. Teespring swag, Patreon support, you know the drill. Like, subscribe, comment to the – grow the YouTube channel. Help us grow the YouTube channel if you're here listening to that. Go like, comment, and subscribe. Let's get it cracking. Yeah. yeah. What he yeah. said. Yeah. All right, yeah. guys. All right. Sandwich time. Out. Sandwich time. <laughs> Adios. <laughs> <laughs>